Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, a new podcast sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm Catherine Marino. I teach in the UCLA Department of History, and I'm a friend of the Luskin Center. The goal of the center is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in so doing, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. Our guest today is Eileen Boris, Hull Professor and Distinguished Professor of Feminist Studies and Professor of History, Black Studies, and Global Studies at the University of California at Santa Barbara. She is the author and editor of numerous award-winning books that focus on the history of women, gender, and labor. There's so many that I won't be able to list all of them, but they include Home to Work, Motherhood and the Politics of Industrial Homework in the United States, Intimate Labors, Care, Sex, and Domestic Work, co-edited with Rachel Salazar Pereñas, Caring for America, Home Health Workers in the Shadow of the Welfare State, co-authored with Jennifer Klein, and most recently in the focus of some of our conversation today, her newest book, Making the Woman Worker, Precarious Labor and the Fight for Global Labor Standards, 1919 to 2019, published last August with Oxford University Press. All of Professor Boris's work over her distinguished career has explored in different ways some fundamental questions what is work and who is a worker? Her work has shown us that who is deemed deserving of benefits, welfare, and pensions, who is deemed, in other words, a worker, and who gets excluded from these standards has enormous implications that shape the structure of our societies and policies and how we live our lives. Professor Boris herself has engaged in these issues not only as a historian, but also as an activist, op-ed writer, and supporter of multiple grassroots workers' movements. And her work has shown us historically and today still that reproductive labor routinely is overlooked and not deemed real work. Reproductive labor as opposed to productive labor is the term we use to describe work involved in sustaining our daily lives. This includes cooking, and feeding, cleaning, clothing, and caring for children, the elderly, the sick, our families. This is work that is essential to everyone's lives. It ensures our communities are healthy and safe, and yet it has taken a very long time for our policies to acknowledge this labor as real work. We'll be talking today with Professor Boris about why this has been the case and how activists around the world have been working to gain recognition for this work. This history, of course, holds deep lessons for us today, especially right now in the midst of the global COVID-19 pandemic. During these past six months, people in the U.S. and around the world have been working from home. The burdens of household labor are continuing to fall disproportionately on women, even more so during this pandemic. And those deemed essential workers who are doing this care and health work are on the very front lines, the most vulnerable to infection, and are disproportionately women, people of color, and women of color. Professor Boris, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, your work has been such an inspiration. Thank you. So we usually start our podcast by talking about the past. And in your most recent book, you take a global approach to these questions about why labor has de been defined as it has by exploring the 100-year history of the International Labor Organization. The ILO is, of course, the international body created at the end of World War I to set global labor standards, and it's now housed in the UN. Could you tell us a little about how and why you came to be interested in this topic, why you thought the ILO would particularly be a good lens into uh, women's labor in particular? Well, how I came to write Making the Woman Worker, like all origin stories, it has perhaps a not quite reliable narrator. <laughs> but here's one version uh, of how I came to looking, uh, to embracing the ILO, an organization easily dismissed as irrelevant or a throwback to a social democratic past, to an era before neoliberalism in today's globalization, because it brings together the way it's organized uh, delegates from nation states, but they're divided into worker representatives, employer representatives, and state representatives. 
it has everything to do with the past and the present, how I came to write this book. In the 1980s, I had begun researching the regulation of industrial homework, what became my book, Home to Work, and had gotten involved with fighting the Reagan era deregulation of practice. One day in March of 1989, I got an invitation to participate in an ILO meeting of experts on home-based labor in Amanabad, India, the home of Sewa, the Self-Employed Women's Association of Gujarat, a union of informal sector and own account, rag pickers, garment sewers, embroiderers, and street traders. I had the opportunity to travel to where Gandhi began his march to the sea, the scene more, more recently of case and religious-based violence. Along with other scholar experts from all over the world, I considered definitions and types of homework, organizing strategies, occupational health, legal context, and macro and microeconomic trends. And it, it was really fascinating because I was the only one from the US. And one day I was sitting at breakfast with uh, a man from Mexico, a woman from Brazil, a woman from Peru. And one of the Bangladeshi women walked by and called us the Americans. I felt so relieved I wasn't seen as the imperialist colossus from the North. Anyway, uh, during um, the final discussion on future research, each of us pledged to take further action after returning home. And I announced as a historian of the United States, I didn't need to seek funding from the ILO, but I could, uh, but as a feminist activist, I could advance awareness of the emerging campaign for an international convention on home-based workers. And I would help to organize a session at the fourth International Conference on Women's Studies, which was held at Hunter College the, um, uh, the next year. And I could also edit a collection on the subject to disseminate my findings. And if you had asked me what, you know, what happened at this meeting, I might not have remembered. But I did both. And I, when I was in the archives, I actually found the document that when we went around and we, which says something about oral history as well. Well, fast forward uh, almost two decades to 2008, and I was part of a group organizing a conference on the transnational turn in US labor history. And what was I going to contribute? And I had been part of an increasingly global conversation among feminist scholars on the state, the majority of them sociologists and political scientists, and we were looking at questions of work, welfare, and care. And the journal Social Politics actually came out of these conversations. And I remembered I had these documents copied from the Schlesinger Library from the papers of Frieda Miller, who was the director of the US Women's Bureau under Harry Truman and a prominent labor feminist of the interwar and post, early post-war years. And these internal memo, memos were on the appropriate US position for a revised international convention on maternity uh, protection. And it seemed like a promising topic to explore whether and when the US became an outlier in the provision of labor standards for wage-earning women and women who supported their households through going out to work. And because we were doing it on the Americas, I ended up looking at something that you know much more about, that is the policies in Latin America. Uh, because Latin American countries, from the time they were part of the ILO, would sign on, even though in practice, the uh, their various... Uh, national uh, regulations on whether it would be equal pay or maternity or industrial homework were uh, far less extensive and also not necessarily enforced, but on paper looked a lot better than the US. In, in any case, I went to Geneva to do research and I was hooked because I, I really saw a world of possibilities because of the multiple stakeholders involved in the discussions at the ILO, the employer workers, the governments from North and South, East and West, colonizers and from liberation movements. And so there was a possibility of charting the development of standard employment, that is employment that is covered by labor standards, you know, minimum wage, maximum hours, occupational health, et cetera. And also we're looking at the informal sector and power relations based on gender and geography, as well as competing labor and social provision regimes. 
So that's, you know, how I came to the ILO. And it was um, in part, and this I only really dawned on me after I did that first research, of course, because I had insights from the late 80s and early 90s from the campaigns of home-based workers and their various feminist advocates, of which I was a minor one. Uh, and so that gave me a lens into how to read these, these documents. And so I wanted to write about the gendering process of ILO labor standards, not about so much about women in the ILO, although who was there and what branch, it's a very complex organization with many, many uh, different uh, components within its civil service, when it's, it's international labor office, but it was really an arena to study um, to, a, an international, transnational, and global intersectional perspective. So that's how I got there. <laughs> yes, thank you. It's really fascinating how your own experiences in the late 80s and 90s ultimately really informed the book and uh, everything came full circle. I was so struck with your book about the bigger conceptual arguments you're making in it because you both trace this really rich history of how the woman worker gets defined by the ILO and is you know, viewed as a problem because as you point out, the ILO was initially, it said that it would protect all workers, but it was really, the goal was to protect the white male industrial worker from the, what we call today the global north. Um, and the woman worker was viewed as this aberration problem. And um, your book tracks how initially the woman worker being considered was the um, increasing numbers of women in the global north who are doing um, perhaps some of this textile and industrial labor, but then increasingly um, you call differences other, um, the more marginalized and excluded women were really these women from the global south and women of color in the U.S. doing informal labor out, viewed outside of these standardized labor regulations. And you're showing really how, especially women from the global south are on the front lines of expanding what a worker um, is by saying we belong in these labor standards. So I found that so compelling. And then I also found really compelling your larger argument, which is that understanding how the woman worker shifts is central to understanding how global labor itself has changed over the past century. <clears throat> because as you explain it, although the woman worker was once a special category, she, this concept of, of the woman worker has now become the global norm. Precarious work has represented, um, has represented a growing portion of the global labor force since the 70s and 80s, of course, with the rise of free trade, globalization, deregulation of labor standards. And today, most workers labor outside of standardized labor law regimes, a phenomenon some have called the feminization of labor. And as you put it in your book, quote, the woman worker has turned into a harbinger for a world of feminized labor, part-time, short-term, and low-waged, in which there are no employers but only the self-employed, able to labor as long as they can for as little as possible. This is a very profound argument. And I guess there are two things that I wanted to, to talk to you about regarding your book before we turn to the real implications that your history has for us right now in this moment we're in. Um, I mean, one is the really vital activism of women from the global south and the way that they, as you say, do not see the ILO as irrelevant. They, in fact, view it as an important tool to their grassroots mobilizations. And then second, this conceptual argument you, you make um, and how we get from the woman worker being this exception to the rule to really becoming the global norm, as you put it. So I guess I'm putting to you two questions. I don't know if you want to maybe tackle the mobilization of yeah. women from the global south and we can weave in our discussion later of where we are today. Yeah. Well, let me just begin with the this broad argument about the this concept of the woman worker. You know, one of the challenges of writing this book is that we don't really think in these male-female terms and we think of these terms as quite fluid today. And yet, you know, you look at it historically and the categories are male, female. They're not often even broken up into like white woman, black woman. In, in, and when you go to this international level and transnational level, it's even national categories. And so 
that becomes quite a challenge. And so early on, I decided that uh, I was going to, the throughput was going to be the conceptual, uh, this construction of these categories that have real meaning in on real people's lives, uh, as opposed to uh, knowledge production. So one of the first lessons is the ILO has been a really important uh, venue for the production of knowledge. We rely on its statistics, but these statistics are not neutral. They come out of these um, political struggles. And they are infused then with uh, gender, geography, racialized gender, uh, colonialism, and so much else. Um, so I think that's really that's really important to note. And so as you put, as you remind us, the male trade unionists who helped to forge the ILO and their government and employer counterparts thought of the worker as the male breadwinner. Though they recognized that they had to extend standards to women in industry, at least they, like production in the global south, undermine the family wage and the status of these male breadwinners. We could argue that labor standards, whether treating women the same as men or treating um, women differently, because, especially because of the social assignment of family and care labor to women. Well, all of this was about allocating labor between the market and the family home or the home. It was really about how racial capitalism would function when you think about it, how are you going to reproduce the labor force? So reproductive labor remained at the center of debates over work, even as its status as work was denied as you know, considered a labor of love, as not work. So we give protection through maternity leave or uh, protection or, or hours, uh, in order to replenish the woman in the home so she can go back to work when needed by the economy. Mm -hmm. Right. So what she does in the home isn't considered work. Right. And, and, but we have to maintain her labor power, her possibility for the future, even though we know it's precisely that labor power. And we really see that in the informal sector in in like rural women in uh, the global south and my my heroines if i have any in the book of the people in the program of rural women in the late 70s and early 80s who really were involved in participatory action research and they're the people who connected with sewa and i met some of those people when i was in amanabad back in 89 and they were the ones who put home-based work along with some other facts factors onto the agenda, but I'll get to that in a minute. But it was really by differentiating the mother in the home from all working women, the ILO and even the labor feminists in the early 20th century that were there, uh, reinforced the separating of mother work from the work of employment that has haunted the formation of global labor standards. And this binary you know, the productive and reproductive labor, others call paid and unpaid work, and the ILO divides as to work and family responsibilities, really cordon off care from employment. And you could argue uh, that that led to women's labor in part being undervalued, both whether it's paid or when she goes into, you know, she was a temporary worker, pin money. So with the, but with the decline of the Fordist regime of mass manufacturing through integrated factories and the new global organization of production in the late 60s and the 1970s, we've developed what I call a care work economy, the shifting of household labor into service jobs that reflect a double reorganization, not only a movement from unpaid to paid and personalism to contract, tendencies long in motion, but a splintering of the work process so the personal and domestic labor has divided anew into an array of specialized occupations. And these are the jobs that cannot be outsourced, though the labor force can and does migrate in. And this care work economy uh, in, in public care work, which a lot of public employment is, uh, the creation of the infrastructure for daily life, uh, 
social services, the health system. These are the basic motors of the economy. We've become, at least in the United States, a service economy. If we think of, you know, and, and there's been concentrated ownership has meant that local organizing no longer suffices. Take hotel chains, which is the commodification of household labor writ large, if you think about it. To the extent then that we have a service economy, then the conditions of commodified care work associated with women or feminized people, uh, that its precarious features of being outside of labor standards uh, really characterizes large swaths of the economy. So arguments once used to protect the woman worker, as they would night work, put them in, you know, women working at night, they were in danger on the streets. Uh, they were in danger because of lack of sleep. They were in danger because they couldn't do the unpaid reproductive labor, etc. Now apply to all workers. But under neoliberalism, the latest revisions of these very conventions as gender neutral as part-time work allow for lesser standards for all. Is that the, the old argument used to be of legal equality feminists in the U.S. do away with, say, protections for women workers, and then everyone can have protections. But that's not what happened, as um, historians and legal scholars have shown. Instead, everyone dropped down. It was like what the uh, social labor feminist Rose Schneiderman said uh, back in 1919, you know, women have struggled too hard to end up being just as exploited as men. We don't, and um, or as um, Florence Kelly of the National Consumers League said um, with Atkins v. Um, Children's Hospital, which struck down, uh, Supreme Court struck down the minimum wage law in 1923, I believe, now women have a constitutional right to stop. Well, that's what, that's what happened even at the, with the ILO. Uh, so even under labor standards, even standardized work becomes more precarious under the new power relations and to keep the employers in the ILO has to give gave them some concessions as with part-time work as with night work as with um fee charging employment agencies etc so um but you know but what does that leave us um rather than uh, up in the racialized gender uh, sex gender division of labor. The ILO today uh, talks about let's have standards and let's have policies so family caregivers can also go out to work. And but also let's improve the wages and conditions of the care sector. Important indeed, and the latter is because of the activism of domestic workers, and we'll get to that. But it does not call for a reorganization of home and work, although. Uh, the international statisticians, which the ILO uh, sponsors its conference, et cetera, has now called for uh, having um, work in the home done for the family counted in official statistics. Mm -hmm. Would give us a real sense of the range of, of labor. Right. So thank you. I mean, it seems like you're saying the story of the ILO is one of um, sort of neoliberal tra tragedy in a way, and that the global precariat is, um, you know, mimics in the fact that it is not protected and precarious, um, the sort of women worker of the past. But it's also a story in some ways, as you're saying, of triumph, because there are ways in which these domestic workers have been pushing for a, what could be a quite radical, you know, reevaluation of the relationship. And I don't want to be negative towards the ILO because it is the, it's very multiple. And it was the one organization compared to the World Bank, compared to many uh, other international entities that it was, it always had the human face. It was always concerned with the, and continues to be what's decent work and always concerned with the conditions of working people. And working people had a voice at the ILO. Uh, so it's not that uh, it is a neoliberal institution. It actually is an arena 
where all these forces have fought and play out. And it's one in which the global trade union secretariats, and even though its organization doesn't allow full voice for NGOs, have also played out. And so it's been uh, an arena for struggle, which has allowed increasingly uh, workers to uh, to use it to get standard international standards that then they can bring back to their nations for their local struggles. So you exactly yeah. So you want you want to hear about uh, some of that. Uh, the way in which uh, grassroots workers themselves have used the ILO as a tool. And here, I really think it is a question of sort of a dialectic of local organizing and global actions, that there is an interplay between insiders and outsiders, between pressure from below and very smart uh, politicking from above. That so. The ILO uh, really remained through most of its history very reluctant to address home spaces as places of employment until the self-activities of home-based workers first and then domestic workers really pushed um, the issue in the last 20 years uh, or so. Well, really beginning in the 1980s for the home-based workers. The International Union Federations and the Trade Secretariats always spoke about industrial homework. Uh, and the point was you want to get rid of homework because it undermined factory conditions. But after World War II, it was much more complex because the movement of much of this work already was being outsourced to what we think of as the third world. And then how are you going to organize the factories in the third world to maintain your conditions at home? So uh, you really get uh, discussions about multinationals, about outsourcing in in the late 40s, the 50s, and really you get a multinational uh, instrument, it's not a convention, in the uh, 1970s. So there's a really a lot of this discussion uh, happening, but the feminist staff within the ILO shared a very broader understanding of the home-based along with the rural women of the global South themselves, because it wasn't just industrial homework. It was this own account. You're technically an independent contractor. You're, you're bringing work into your home, but you really aren't independent. You're really dependent on the uh, supplier. And it was really uh, this you have these development feminists located in the program on rural women and in regional field offices, especially Southeast Asia, pushing for regulating homework from within the bureaucracy beginning in the 1980s. And they partnered with grassroots groups to improve women's lives in the informal sector, what they called the new putting out uh, system. Uh, these stakeholders, which were labor feminists, garment unions, development specialists, the, some ILO staff, and home-based worker campaigns, uh, particularly in India, uh, Britain, the Netherlands, uh, but elsewhere in Southeast Asia, the Philippines, um, they brought their own goals to the table. And uh, in the book, I tell the story how the women in the office worked with Sewa to push through a convention. But it wouldn't have happened, I learned, but for the trade unions. So this is something I didn't realize when I was a campaigner. And when I was going to write this story, I thought, well, I'm going to write it about the women campaigners. But mm -hmm. when I began looking into the records, that if it wasn't for the switch in the global trade unions, then it wouldn't have happened because the campaigners didn't have a place at the table. They only had a place at the table through the global trade unions mm -hmm. or through government. Mm -hmm. It was more likely getting it through the global trade unions. And they realized and even the U.S. unions, which were very hostile to industrial homework, uh, they realized that if you, if you say, let's just ban it, it was going to happen underground anyway. If you say, let's regulate it, then the conditions under for regulation will make it unprofitable for employers mm -hmm. because you couldn't control the supply, you couldn't control uh, the quality, et cetera. So some of the work would go back into factories. That was the theory. 
What it really went back to was not factories in New York. It went back, it went abroad to Bangladesh, but that's a whole other story. So um, it really was the IUF under Dan Gallen, the International Union of Food, et cetera, et cetera, workers. Uh, the Sewa had uh, beading makers, cigar makers, and that's how they got involved in that. The I ICFTU, which the F got taken out for free trade unions um, after the end of the Cold War, national unions in Great Britain and the Netherlands. And Sewa really plotted a campaign for international action with other groups organized HomeNet International with British and Dutch activists. And so the ILO already was moving towards the informal sector and what are we going to do about it? Of course, with the ILO, it was let's formalize the informal sector, which is still its goal. But um, the employers, though, were, they all voted against it. They walked out. They tried to uh, stop it. So success was really the willingness to convince the governments and to keep the trade unions on board. Uh, the opening up of the ILO to questions of the informal sector, uh, the problem of multinational enterprises really set the stage. And the great concern with child labor and the new uh, you know, unfree labor systems. Mm -hmm. And so this path-breaking recognition of the home as a workplace in uh, 1996, I believe, really had very few signatories. Convention 177 has 10 as of 2019. But it really was important because it launched an international action for other excluded informal and non-standard workers. And um, it has been used on the ground for national laws and corporate practices. Uh, and that set the stage for the embrace of the domestic Right, workers. yeah. And um, and that's that was really uh, so when I, so when I was rediscovering the ILO uh, in the period from 2008 to 2011, because I was also asked to write an essay about them by uh, for uh, Women's Social Movements International. That's when the organizing on the ground was happening for the convention uh, 189, and I was involved uh, doing support work for uh, the international domestic workers and, uh, and, 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 and locally since then. Uh, I'm just going to jump in. I appreciate your talking about um, the sort of collaborations between the trade unions and the grassroots workers and um, pushing forward this um, uh, understanding of labor as being including the informal sector that you talk about happening in the 1990s really as this turning point with that 1996 homework convention 177 and as you say it paves the way as you describe in your book too for this mobilization around the domestic workers convention 189 in 2010 and 11 which is also really important and i want to underscore again how important these international conventions are to various groups on the ground who use them to push their governments to comply with them or who take them as a legal framework um, if their government passes legislation that does not comply with them. So that's really, really is important. I want to sort of shift gears now um, and, and move into today. So we're obviously right living through COVID, which has really been exacerbating, making much more urgent uh, some of these issues that you've been writing about for your whole career regarding reproductive labor. There's, you know, still this really persistent gap between the amount of time and energy that women spend doing household labor and childcare work compared to men. And studies have shown that during COVID, that gap has just gotten even more pronounced. Um, and that in various ways, women are really shouldering the burden for COVID. And, um, and so, I, I mean, that connects as well to sort of the ways in which people are starting to reimagine value care work. And so I'm wondering if you can just talk with us both. I mean, I think you started telling us about why you think these, these gaps still exist. I mean, I think that you put it really well when you talked about the, um, you know, the division between the mother versus the male breadwinner model. That model is so ingrained that it, I think that is still something that we're, we're grappling with right now. Um, and it, but it, 
it sort of doesn't explain everything. So right, and I think we've moved from just having a male breadwinner, winner, female caregiver model to a much more complex system. At least you know in the West, industrialized, the capitalist West. Uh, well, I jump in and say that was never the reality of course we just mean that in our last right of course it was never the reality but but what this is what i would argue what we have we have uh two models working i mean models are just models that are real real life totally we have the dual breadwinner female caregiver and we have the lone mother do it everything and one of the tragedies of the failure to reorganize reproductive labor and to value paid reproductive labor when it becomes employment is the solution in the last 20, 30 years with rising inequality has been, uh, we have women who could afford to go out to work into good jobs, the people who can afford to stay home, brought other women into their homes, into work, to pay them to do the reproductive labor. The way in which uh, upper middle class people, or, but it isn't just upper middle class, uh, so, solve the work and family dilemma, so-called work and family dilemma, or the employment and care dilemma, I prefer to call it that way, is by having other women, migrant women, uh, both internal and external, poor women coming into their homes and doing the care work, doing the the housework, and to the extent that childcare centers or uh, socially community based uh, services did not meet the needs of people, particularly when you have a twenty four seven workplace. Uh, and because of commute times and all sorts of things, then we had a reprivatization of caring work through employing other women to come right. in, into work. Sarah Ferris's book, uh, In the Name of Women's Rights, Sarah Ferris talks about that. I, you know, I love her argument. I, she's one of the few people I cite in the introduction, actually quote from her. The problem with uh, a certain kind of feminism was that work will make you free, work defined as employment, but you're free on the backs of others. And that's, um, and that's the dilemma. So that solution to the employment and care problem from my generation of people who uh, had kids in the 80s, uh, uh, the feminists, the, the women's liberation generation, whether we were in same sex or opposite sex couples, whether we were single parents or not, meant that that failure to, to really, though people did reimagine how home and work could be organized or employment and care could be organized, but we didn't win. Right. The forces of the reaction, maybe we didn't try hard enough. Right. But that meant under COVID, where we're stuck with these two real problems under increased inequalities. The one is work in the home and what employment in the home. Who, yeah. And the other is the exposure and the treatment of so-called essential workers. So in our state of California, who is disproportionately getting infected? Latinas, Latinos, African-Americans, Blacks, uh, farm workers, people in nursing homes, which says something about the condition in, in jails, who's disproportionately in jails given the carceral state. So, the, but it's the frontline essential workers, the healthcare, feminized work. These are the people getting, um, yeah. So, uh, it is this really this devaluation of care work and this failure really to reorganize. There was reimaginings, but to reorganize employment and care 
um, has really led us to where we are right now. But there's also the legacy of history. And that really leads me to uh, some of the current campaigns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. I was going to make that um, pose that question to you because I was. I think you're making a really great point that it's not just about um, how we change gender-based tropes around the male Brenner winner versus you know, but really about um, public institutions that encourage collective responsibility um, for essential work like paid childcare and affordable, high-quality childcare and long-term care and. Um, yes, you're, the fact that these essential workers um, and in, and disproportionately people of color and migrant workers are the ones on the front lines, um, and how um, there are these policy proposals now, like Senate Bill 1257 in California, and you wrote a really wonderful piece in Descent Magazine in which you connected this to the COVID pandemic. Could you tell us about Oh, I'm delighted and to talk about that. Uh, Elena Maria Drazo, uh, who, of course, was a leader in uh, Unite Here, one of the leaders of the Immigrant Rights, Rights of March in what, 2005, and she's now state, one of the state senators from California, from L.A., and she's featured in the wonderful new film that's in POV, uh, her campaign uh, about women of color running for office. She introduced this bill uh, for the California Domestic Workers uh, Coalition. It has passed the Senate. Well, one of the legacies of racial, racial capitalism was that domestic and farm work were excluded from labor standards, particularly domestic workers. And it is part of not looking at, it's part of the ideology of the home as a private sphere, but it's also the need of the New Deal to compromise with the Southern Democrats. And so not that other people thought that domestic workers ought to go into the labor law because the home is the home. It's not real work. So when the Occupational Health and Safety Law in, what, 1972, 71, uh, is passed, uh, OSHA, uh, it just follows what the Fair Labor Standards Act and household workers are excluded from OSHA. Cal OSHA, the state law, followed the national and household uh, workers are excluded. So... When domestic workers in California, in their long struggle to get a domestic workers bill of rights, the robust bill of 2011, which which did not get passed, uh, that included inclusion in occupational health and safety. Uh, But that was dropped over time to get the bill passed. So we have learned, even before the pandemic, when the wildfires hit California, domestic workers were hurting. They were hurting from the particles. They, they were hurting to be told to stay with homes and guard them while people fled. They, uh, they were working with toxic materials on a daily basis, never mind during disasters. And COVID, of course, has really made the need for personal protective equipment essential. So this bill would put these workers under Cal OSHA. And there was some amendments from the original bill to specify more. And so um, some of the um, specification, I want to um, uh, get this uh, to you um, in um, uh, like, well, it was under the personal protective equipment, uh, to drinking water, to have drinking water, personal safety devices, noise control, repetitive motion injury, dust and fumes, the storage of hazardous substances, substances, fire detection systems. Uh, and it, what Calosha does, it works by complaint. So it really gives guidance to employers. And the bill would also establish an advisory committee for standards specific to the occupation. I would think the aerosol spray standards are going to be very important 
because right now they're not covered by that. Um, the biggest problem is the old one, the refusal to recognize the home as a workplace and the fear of privacy on the part of the employers. Uh, I was listening to the, the debate when the senators were voting on the bill last week. And as one senator, a Republican who opposed uh, a woman said, what are you, what are we going to, what's going to happen to the privacy of the employers? Uh, what if an inspector comes in the home and sees something else? Uh, you know, can they act on it? Uh, uh, what about the rights of the employers to privacy? Mm-hmm. Well, this notion of a man's home is his castle has been used against the police power of the state going way back um, in, you know, in the 1870s, 80s. Uh, uh, Inri Jacobs, which is in the early 1890s with cigar making in tenement houses. It was used the argument uh, to try to derail the uh, decent work for domestic workers, Convention 189. And I heard it again and again uh, in, among our uh, state senators. But when you come into my home, it becomes a workplace. When you're working in my home, it's a workplace. Now, no one's saying that everybody's going to have to have rails and all the ADA, et cetera. But there may be conditions in which, yes, the stairs are not uh, safe. So this will be something that will work not in an adversarial way, but in a consultative way. Mm-hmm. Right. Thank you. I mean, it does, yeah, it seems critical to expand the Occupational Health and Safety Act to include all. But you know, what's really important with these bills? Because two things. One is who's going to enforce them? It's the workers themselves and their allies who are going to enforce them by bringing the complaints and by educating people. These bills and these conventions. They're important because they're organizing tools. We see this over and over again. So when the ILO passed Convention 189, the National Domestic Workers and the California Coalition had an ad in 2011, first New York, Mm -hmm. which was 2000, for Bill of Rights, Mm -hmm. then the ILO, then California. It was like yeah. looking at the progress of history. And we're really seeing the fruits of that organizing today. Yeah. We're seeing numerous right. domestic workers, bill of, bills of rights being passed in places like Philadelphia and other parts in the country. It's really um, important to remember the utility of these ILO conventions. And I think that we won't have a chance to go into this today, but um, You've also been writing and thinking a lot about how the Me Too movement is interacting with these debates around labor, how thinking about safety includes a workplace that's free of sexual harassment and violence. And again, it sees women on the front lines, you know, and the domestic workers, the hotel workers, they're rallying around and have helped push through um, this this, uh, ILO convention that would address gender-based violence at work. It's just another lesson of how relevant all of this work is to the most important issues today. What's really significant about that convention, and it covers the informal as well as the formal sector, social events and not just work in the office or the workplace, um, interns and hiring, the journey to work, and it covers LBGTQ people as well as those defined as um, cisgender. And yet some of it's done under the table because it takes place under these negotiations of some nations that won't vote for a convention if it, if it mentions LGBTQ. Um, Fascinating what happens and how then broad definitions get put in through either the debate or through in the recommendations and what gets in and what gets excluded. But it reminds us that these definitions have real consequences and that they can be used, as you put it, for organizing on the ground. Absolutely. Thank you so much for leaving us with that reminder of the significance of these definitions. And as you remind us, there is a lot of Byzantine work going on behind the scenes of these international organizations, but it's really important that we understand them. And I think your work really highlights why we need to take the time to do so. 
So again, time and again, your work has really shown us that we have to value this essential reproductive work, recognize that it is valuable, reorganize it to be fairly distributed, compensated, valued, and supported. And it's exciting to see the numerous new initiatives that are emerging and that you yourself are part of um, that are vital to having a better future. So thank you if so I much. Say, can I say one more thing? Sure, one last word. <laughs> I think it's really uh, personally uh, gratifying, but also very significant that right now there are people at the ILO who are looking back who found me, they were in other sectors, um, my work on homework from, from the 1990s, my writings, uh, because what they're doing 30 years later, they realize we're all becoming home, homeworkers, that um, they are looking at um, Convention 177 as a tool to modify abusive digital homework and stem the outwork in global supply chains. And they're studying mechanical Turks and all of that. And so as the burden of production falls on all of us in a gig economy, and we're all becoming independent contractors, as social protection narrows, the struggles of these home-based and reproductive workers offer hope that collective action, new organization, and protest might strengthen a global social wage. Thank you. That's a really powerful way message to leave us with. And it's um, so true that in this gig economy, we have so much to learn from your many works. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today, Professor Boris, and for sharing your insights. Then and Now is a production of the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy with support from the UCLA History Department. Then and Now can be found on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let us know your thoughts on this or other episodes of Then and Now by emailing us at luskincenter at history.ucla.edu. Special thanks to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman, and to David Myers, the director of the Luskin Center for History and Policy. Thanks so much again, Professor Boris. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.